Well, good morning again. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Sunrise. If you have a Bible, would you uh, please turn to Mark chapter 10, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, you are welcome to use one of the Bibles in these black chairback pockets. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep one of the Bibles in these black chairback pockets. We want everyone to have access to God's Word. And so please help yourself. If you do use one of these Bibles, Mark chapter 10 is on page 722. Um, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start reading in verse 23. But before we do, uh, if, you, if you ask my wife, and I invite you to afterwards, she doesn't even know she's in the sermon this week. If you ask my wife, she will tell you without hesitation that I am a man who loves a good deal. I love getting the most bang for my buck, getting the most value for my money. In fact, Kim doesn't even like taking me to the grocery store because she knows that if it's something that I'm interested in, I will find all the selections, I will find the weights of each package, the, the, the price, and I will do mental math to make sure I'm getting the best bulk discount on what I get. My, my community group knows that very recently I spent five full minutes in the cereal aisle at Costulus really agonizing over whether I was going to get $6.50 worth of value out of the double pack of Cap'n Crunch. I, I love to get a good value, and that probably takes it to an extreme, but we're always making these kinds of calculations about whether something's really worth our while. Like, if you know you can only stay for two hours, is it really worth driving all the way around to Rum Point? Or if you know you're going to have to leave halfway through and you're going to miss snacks, is it even worth going to community group? Right? We're always asking, is this worth what it's going to cost me? And, and for everyone who has trusted in Christ, there will come a time, and probably several over the course of your life, where you ask the question, is following Jesus worth what it's costing me right now? And that's the place where Jesus' disciples were in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And if you were here last week, you know that Jesus has just had this remarkable interaction with a rich, upstanding young man. This man comes to Jesus very humbly, falls at his feet, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he wants to know that he's made it, that he's in. He's been keeping God's commandments since his childhood, he says, but he wants to make sure he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing to get eternal life. And Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, just one. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the man can't do it. He goes away sad. He can't do what Jesus has asked him to. He thought, he thought that God was his most important thing, that God was number one, that he kept all of God's commandments. But what he found was that actually his money was his master. He couldn't He couldn't do what Jesus had asked him to do. And Jesus used this encounter to show his disciples the danger of wealth, the danger of the love of money, that it's difficult to enter the kingdom if you have lots of money, lots of possessions. And this interaction leads to a very tender moment for the apostle Peter. Peter has just seen this man go away because he's unable to leave everything in his life to follow Jesus. And Peter starts to think about everything he's left, everything he's walked away from. Peter quit his job. He was a fisherman. He left the nets on the shore. He followed Jesus. He walked away from his source of income. He gave up a quiet family life. It says that the Bible teaches us that that Peter's house was the home of operations for Jesus. And so Peter gave up the privacy of his home. Now he's got a bunch of 
you know, smelly disciples hanging around, sleeping on his couch, you know, waking up and eating all his food in the kitchen. He gave up the privacy of his home, and he spent long periods of time traveling with Jesus away from his wife. It was costing him a great deal to follow Jesus. And so Peter, in this passage, looks to Jesus to assure him that following him is worth what it's costing him. And maybe you, too, have been feeling recently kind of the weight of following Jesus, the cost of following Jesus. We've had some really heavy sermons the last couple weeks, sermons about being ruthless, cutting sin out of your life, sermons about Jesus' view on divorce and remarriage, a sermon about money, you know, which is always a hard topic to think about. Maybe you, too, need Jesus this morning to assure you that following him is worth what it costs you. So let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you again full of need. We need you to speak. We need you to come by your Spirit. Help us to understand. Help us to see our own lives in light of your word. Help us to live the way you've called us to live. We need you to come. God, it is, this is vain if you are not here. And so, Father, please come. Be with me. Be with these people as we look at your word and let your will be done. In Jesus' name. Oh, and, and we pray for Pastor Ryan. We pray for Pastor Ryan in Peru with Eduardo and Emily and the teenagers from Grace Christian Academy. Father, please, he's preaching this morning too. Please bless him this morning. Bless the church where he's preaching. Father, please fill him with energy and strength. Lord, please, please bless the church in Peru and those who don't know you in Peru through Pastor Ryan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, we're going to see three assurances from Jesus that following him is worth whatever it costs us. And the first assurance is eternal life is a gift, not a purchase. Eternal life is a gift, not a purchase. There's a danger anytime we talk about what it costs us to follow Jesus, the cost of discipleship, that we can start thinking of eternal life as something we can buy with our obedience. If we, just, if we just try hard enough, if we just deny ourselves enough, if we just carry our cross every day, 
then we can know we have eternal life. And believing that will crush you because you can never be good enough to feel like I'm obeying Jesus enough to have eternal life. And this was the mistake the rich young man made. Remember, the rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what must I do to be saved? He was looking for a price tag. He wanted to know, how much is it going to cost me? How much more to have eternal life? And when Jesus told him, sell all that you have, he wasn't saying, that's the price of heaven, give away everything you have. That, that wouldn't have brought him any closer to heaven. He was doing that to show him what his true master was, to expose how much he needed to be saved, not how to be saved. Jesus makes this clear in the passage we just read. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In the history of the world, the number of camels that have passed through the eyes of needles is exactly zero, right? It's impossible. That's Jesus' point. And his disciples get this. They say, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If if it's impossible, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus wants us to be so clear right from the start, it's impossible for a person to save himself. We can never keep God's commands perfectly. We can never be self-denying enough. With man, it is impossible. Salvation has to come from God. The door to the kingdom has to be opened from the inside. We can never jimmy the lock. God has to invite us in. We need to know, I need you to hear me, that we, here's the bad news, we are all worse than we think. At the beginning, when God created us, humanity was perfect. We were like God in his holiness. We were like God in his love. We were like God in his purity, and we have all rebelled. We have all turned away. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us loves God more than everything else, and that's just the first commandment. We have all fallen short. When, when I was growing up, my family would take these long road trips, and we would always, if we could find one, stop at a Land's End outlet store. Land's End is an American clothing company. And in Land's End, they always have a rack or a section of the store called Not Quite Perfect. And that's where they keep the slightly discounted clothes that have stitching a little out of line or a crooked tag or a little discoloration in some place that people can't see. And we like to think of ourselves as being kind of in that section. We're, we're not quite perfect. We of course, we all have our, you know, our foibles. We can have a little bit of a short fuse. Uh, we can drink a little bit too much, more that's good for us. Sometimes, sometimes we work a little bit more than we need to and kind of leave our family behind. We're just, we're not quite perfect, but we're really, we're not so bad. But we, we are so bad. Jesus says we've fallen so far short that it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom unless God does it. With man, it is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. The only way we can come to God is if God comes looking to us, if God comes looking for us, and that is what he has done in Jesus. The Bible says that if you've trusted in Jesus, that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before Adam and Eve even existed, God chose you in love. He decided, I'm going to save these people for myself at the cost of my son's life. 
And then at just the right time, he sent Jesus into the world to live the only perfect life on record, to die and to rise, taking the penalty for our sins, and to bring all people to himself. God came looking for us. In fact, in this passage, that's exactly where Jesus is going. He is having this interaction with this man on the road to Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. He's going gladly. He's going voluntarily. He's going in love because he knows that it's the only way we can come into the kingdom. It's a gift, not a purchase. And the way the gift comes to us, Jesus has already said. If you look up in verse 15, which we looked at a few weeks ago, He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You receive eternal life like a child. A child doesn't pay his parents for his food or his home. He doesn't pay them for his school tuition. He knows he has nothing to contribute. He just receives what his parents give him. He he lets them do what only they can do, and he receives it gladly. And that's how we receive the kingdom, by trusting that God has done what we couldn't. Receiving it by faith, the Bible says. It's a gift. And we need to remember this because if we start thinking of eternal life as something we can achieve, as something we can pay God for through trying hard, through doing enough, it'll be the end of our joy because we can never do enough. We'll never be assured that we belong to him. Every time we slip up, we worry, that's it. God is going to cast me out. God is going to be done with me. One time too many, it's over. If you think that salvation is something you have to accomplish, Christianity is going to crush you. It's going to crush you because Jesus' commands are too deep. They're too searching. He says it's not enough to not physically commit adultery. You can't even lust in your heart. It's not enough to never murder. You can't even be angry with someone in your heart. He says it's not enough to just do religious things, pray and fast and give to the poor. He says you have to, in your heart, be doing them to please God not people. It's too deep. Jesus goes too deep. If you think that obeying Jesus is going to give you eternal life, you're going to wash out of Christianity. You are not going to make it. You're going to be too tired of carrying that on your shoulders, of of having a guilty conscience, of examining every motive, of having a God who's impossible to please. You're You're not going to follow Jesus. You're not going to obey him. You're not going to enter the kingdom. You're walking away. But if you, know, if you know that God loved you while you were still a sinner, if you know that God came looking for you, that you could be counted righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you did, you know, then you know that when you slip up, that your eternal destiny isn't hanging in the balance. You can, you can confess your sin to God. You can know that you're forgiven. And you can try again. You can get up and keep going. You can obey God out of gratitude and love and trust, not out of fear. This is the, we need to understand this groundwork before we even start talking about the cost of following Jesus. So if we're going to know that following Jesus is worth it, we need to know first that eternal life is a gift, not a purchase. The second assurance in this passage is Jesus knows that the gift comes with a cost. Jesus knows the gift comes with a cost. One of the paradoxes about Christianity is this. That even though eternal life comes to us absolutely freely as a gift, that it costs us everything to receive it. Jesus says that following him means carrying a cross. He, means, he says that following him is a kind of death. 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. We receive the kingdom by faith. We receive it as a gift. But when we receive Jesus, he invariably turns our lives upside down. And that's what he did for these disciples. These disciples, the first five disciples you see Jesus call in the Gospel of Mark are Peter and Andrew, James and John, all fishermen, and Levi, a tax collector. And all of them had to leave their jobs to follow him. All of them had to walk away. And not only that, but by trusting in Jesus, by following him, they became kinds of outcasts, alienated from all the people who thought Jesus was just a fraud, that he was just a troublemaker, that he had nothing true to say. And so Jesus chose them by grace, but his grace cost them a great deal. And that's what Peter's thinking of when he says in verse 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. We left everything. Lord, following you has cost us everything. Do you understand what this is like? And in that moment, Jesus, he could have absolutely cracked the whip. I mean, he could have said, Peter, I am the Lord. You follow me. What is it to you what it costs you? You don't think it costs me a great deal to come here and save? But he doesn't. He is so tender with Peter. Look at what he says. He says, Peter, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Jesus knows that it's costly to follow him. He knows that the gift comes with a cost. And he assures Peter, nothing you have left for me is forgotten. Peter, I'm not going to forget a single thing. I'm not going to forget a house. I'm not going to forget a sister. I'm not going to forget a child. Nothing you've left for me is forgotten, and you will be abundantly provided for in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. And he doesn't minimize it either. He doesn't minimize the cost. I mean, the things that he says that his followers have given up or that they may have to give up, these are not little things, right? He says house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands. This isn't like, this isn't like following Jesus might mean limiting ourselves to one dessert at dinner, or drinking Folgers instead of Starbucks. This isn't, this isn't small change. These are the big realities of life. Our homes, our families, our wealth, and our source of income, which is what land would have meant in that society. Following Jesus may make a huge change in the most fundamental parts of your life. People who trust in Jesus today will find that he calls them to get rid of things that are incredibly precious to them. A relationship that they thought was headed to marriage, but falls outside the bounds of what God approves. A lifestyle of personal comfort rather than sacrificial love. A job that means they always have to neglect their family. The gift comes with a cost. Why? If salvation is so free, why does it cost us so much? Because Jesus' aim isn't merely to forgive us. His aim is to make us new people to change us, to make us more like him. He hasn't come just to take care of our guilt, to kind of wash the slate clean. He's come to make us the way we were made to be, like God, perfect, engaging with God. So he calls us away from everything that competes with our love for him because he knows that loving him the most is going to make us the most happy. And he won't have any competitors 
for our happiness. And so he calls us away. He says, you must love him more than your home. Love him more than your job, more than your wealth, more than your parents or your spouse or your children. And he's not saying that everyone has to quit their job. And he's not saying that anyone has to leave their wife or abandon their children. That's not what he means. But he does call us to a new first priority. He says that his followers will have to make sacrifices for my sake and for the gospel. The new life he's calling to us to is a life lived for his sake and for the gospel. A life not oriented around ourselves. What we want to do, what makes us feel good, but what pleases Jesus and what makes his good news known in the world. And it's going to take changes. And those changes are going to be painful. It's painful to have distance in relationships with relatives who don't understand why all of a sudden God's a priority. It's painful to start becoming unselfish, serving your wife, serving your kids. But it's the good kind of pain. It's like, it's like physical therapy, right? Physical therapy that you do after an injury, after a surgery. It feels like torture. I mean, you just want to quit and walk away, but it's the kind of pain that heals. It's a pain that restores. It's a pain that brings restoration. And, and that's the kind of pain it is to, to follow Jesus, to turn from things we love the most and to love him the most. Earlier in this year, this year um, Kim and I, we went on a quasi-diet trying to eat healthier. We had to stop eating a lot of processed sugars and that kind of stuff. I know probably two in three people in this room has done that. It seems like the thing to do in Cayman. And the first few days we did that, I mean, we felt terrible. We felt terrible. We had no energy. We had headaches. We were irritable with each other. We just wanted to nap all the time. Stomach hurts. And it was because our bodies had to learn how to live on real food because you can't just eat, you know, cookies for breakfast and cookies for lunch and a sensible meal of ice cream at dinner. You can't live on that, right? You need to live on real food. And, it, and our bodies, it was traumatic to start living on real food. And that's, and that's what it's like to follow Jesus. It's painful, but it's the pain of starting to live the way you were made to live, of, of weaning yourself off the things that never would satisfy you anyway. So Jesus knows that, that the gift comes with a cost. How might the cost look for us? How might, how might God call us to leave a house for Jesus' sake? I mean, it might mean, as it did for the rich young man, actually leaving the house, selling the house to move somewhere where the gospel isn't known or to downsize so you have more money to give, to give away. But you might not have to leave your house like that. It might be like it was for Peter, who kept his house, but now he used it for Jesus. He used it for the disciples. He used it for the sake of the gospel as a place to host, as a place to, to bring people in. It might mean having community group in your house, having people over for dinner. It might mean letting people crash on your couch when they have nowhere else to go, letting your house serve Jesus' purposes. How might we need to leave brothers or sisters or mother or father or children for Jesus' sake and for the gospel? It it won't mean abandoning your kids, so don't worry about that. But it might mean spending less time alone as a family so you can be more engaged together in the community of the church. It might mean going to a community group, even though it means leaving the kids with a babysitter once a week. It might mean raising your kids in such a way that someday they'll leave you to go preach the gospel, to go move somewhere where where Jesus is needed. It might mean disappointing your parents or your siblings by the job you take or by where you live because you've made a choice about what's best for your walk with God, not what's best for them being near their grandkids. How might we need to leave lands for Jesus' sake? 
At the time, your land was your nest egg. It was your inheritance. It was your source of reliable income. So to leave your land meant you had to walk away from financial security and trust God to provide for you. So for us, leaving land might mean being so generous with our money that we can't do everything we want to do with it. It might mean taking a lower-paying job to be more at home or more able to participate in God's people. I don't know how the cost is going to come to you. I don't even know how it's going to come to me in the next few years. But when it comes, I want us to remember that Jesus knows the cost. He doesn't forget what we leave for his sake. It's not a waste. He knows what it costs, and he cares for us. And even more importantly, the third assurance in this passage is God's provision vastly outweighs the cost. God's provision vastly outweighs the cost. Look again at verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He says that everything we lose Everything we leave, everything it costs us to follow him will come back a hundredfold now, in this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. And that is without exception. He says, no one, no one leaves anything who does not receive a hundredfold. So God's going to provide to those who follow Jesus at great cost something worth a hundred times what they've given up. But what is the hundredfold? What, what is this provision from God? We, we know that it can't be literal. It can't be that Jesus is going to give you literally, I mean, what would you do with a hundred mothers? Or a hundred houses? It, it can't be just kind of this one for one, like you give up, you give up your morning coffee and he gives you a hundred coffees back. It's not literal. And it also doesn't mean material wealth and comfort. There are people who use this passage to manipulate others by saying, if you give to my church, if you give to this ministry, If you give $10, God's going to give you a hundred times that back. This is the way to be rich. That can't be it because Jesus has just talked to his disciples about the danger of love of money. He just said, it's it's more difficult for a camel, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person in the kingdom of heaven. How how cruel would it be to then say, and if you want to be rich, I know the way. Here's the secret. That would be totally inconsistent. And it makes even less sense when you consider that Jesus was, I mean, functionally homeless for most of his ministry. The Apostle Paul often went without shelter, often went without food. Following Jesus is not a guarantee of material comfort or riches. This is not a backdoor to an easy life. He actually goes out of his way to say that with these things God provides will come persecutions. He's not saying, it's gonna, I'm going to make it easy. He says, I'm going to make it worthwhile. So what is this hundredfold? At the very least, Jesus seems to be talking about the undeserved joys of belonging to God's people. Because if you look at the language he uses, the things that we have to leave, he says it's houses and family and lands. It's it's the language of home. And we know that for Jesus, home is wherever his people are. Right? There's this place in Mark chapter 3 we saw a while back where some people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus looks around at this crowded room, all these people who have packed in to listen to his teaching. And he says, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever, whoever does the will of God is my, is my brother and sister and mother. 
He says, this is my family. These people, these people who follow me, this is my community. And it's the same for us. The church has become a family, a community. And, and he, he's saying, you'll get a hundredfold back in this people who understands you, who loves you, who serves you for everything you have to leave in your own family or your own home, your own possessions. He, he even says, I mean, you think about leaving your land, going kind of going it alone, trusting God to provide for you, how often God's provision comes through other believers. And this is just the way it worked in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, this account of the early church is so, like it, it almost intentionally echoes the language of this passage. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So if God calls us to financial sacrifice, he intends to return a hundredfold through providing for us through his people, through the church. Whatever we lose in this earth, God intends to make up in this treasure, the treasure of this community. And even that just scrapes the surface. And that's just the beginning of all we have in Christ that makes following him abundantly worthwhile. If you didn't have it, what would you pay for a clean conscience before God, knowing that all your sins were forgiven? If you didn't have it, what would you give to have an intimate relationship with the God who made you and knows you and loves you? If you, didn't, if you had no access to the Bible, what would you give to have a Bible, to know the absolute truth about God and yourself and the world? What would you give for unshakable confidence that when you die, you are going to pass into pure joy in the presence of God? I mean, is that worth a house to you? Isn't that worth a hundred houses to have that in Christ? God's provision for those who follow Christ abundantly vastly outweighs the cost. And all those things I mentioned are just, they're just tastes. They're nibbles. They're just crumbs of the feast that he describes in this passage as, in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life isn't just more of this. It isn't just kind of an infinite extension of your life in Cayman. Eternal life is the life for which you were made, the life we had with God at the beginning, a world without sin against us or inside us. A world without injustice. A world without fear or doubt or grief or disability or mental illness. A world without death. A world in which we have fellowship with God, where we drink continually from the fountain of all love, joy, and grace. The greatest gift to those who follow Christ, God's greatest provision is giving himself to them. In eternal life, we're going to see his face forever, and we're going to have such joy in his presence that you can't even, we can't even imagine it now. I mean, you can only approximate it. You can think about kind of the high points of your life, like, I now pronounce you husband and wife, or it's a, you know, it's a boy, and you hold your child for the first time. Those moments, just, they're just glimmers of the joy of being with God forever. And those who have left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands will experience that kind of provision from God in this life and in the age to come. 
And we'll be able to say, looking back, that what we received was a hundred, it was worth a hundredfold of whatever we gave up. That it, was, it wasn't even close. That everything was worth it in following Christ. Now there's a danger here we need to consider very briefly. The danger is we start thinking of rewards. And God's going to give me a hundred times what I give up. And you start kind of tracking in your head what God owes you. And you think, man, I, I, when I compare myself to my friends, I've actually given up quite a lot. Like, I bet, I bet in this room, I'm probably first or second. I'm, I'm going to be pretty great in the age to come. And that, there's a danger for Peter there too, right? Because he's saying, well, you know, I've, I've left everything. That guy couldn't leave everything. I left everything. I bet, I bet something pretty good's coming for me. And so Jesus cuts him off right there and says, verse 31, but, Peter, many who are first will be last and the last first. We don't know how it's going to shake out. And it's dangerous to start sort of tracking what God owes you in rewards and comparing yourself to other people. He just wants us to know whatever it costs you is going to be vastly, abundantly worthwhile. Don't compare. Don't get ambitious to rack up points. Just know that I remember what what it cost you, and it's going to be worthwhile. So with that said, let's consider briefly what difference this passage makes in our daily life. I can think of three groups for whom this passage makes an immediate, powerful difference. And the first group is those who right now are acutely experiencing the cost of following Jesus, like Peter was. Maybe your trust in Jesus, your desire to speak about him, have created painful tension in your marriage, or with your parents, with your family, with your friends, people who feel like they don't know you anymore because Jesus has so changed your life and they just want you to go back to the way you were. And that's hard. Or maybe your insistence on acting ethically for Jesus is putting your job in jeopardy. Or you've realized that a dating relationship isn't pleasing to God. You've got to be done with it, even though it's hard. You're experiencing the cost of living for Jesus and the gospel instead of yourself, and you're thinking and wondering, if you're honest, is this worth what it's costing me? And Jesus' answer to you is an unequivocal yes. It is infinitely worth whatever it's costing you to follow me. You will receive from God a hundredfold for all you lose and in the age to come, eternal life. So don't shrink back. Don't walk away. This will be worth it. David Livingston, who some of you may know, was a Scot who gave his life to Africa to bring the gospel into the interior and to, he tried to, tried to undermine and, and disestablish the African slave trade. He experienced a lot of hardship in the course of it. Illness, long separation from family. He was attacked by a lion, right, which was probably an awesome scar, but no fun at the time. He once said in an address to Cambridge University, he says, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, all these are nothing when compared with the glory that will be revealed in and for us. Listen to this. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Whatever you're going through now, whatever it's costing you to follow Jesus, someday you will look back on it and you will say, I never made a sacrifice. What God has given me is worth a hundred of everything I gave up. I also want to say something to those who are counting the cost, not experiencing it, but counting it. Those like this young man, this rich young man, 
who have not trusted Jesus, who are not following him, and who are wary of making a commitment to Christ when you see, kind of ahead of time, in this sermon, what it could cost you to follow him. Jesus assures you in this passage that what you will gain in him, abundant provision and joy, and the age to come, eternal life, it will make every sacrifice abundantly worthwhile. The costly obedience to which Jesus calls us is what he knows will make us most happy. Not happy in the cheap thrills of this, of this world, but happy in him, happy in him forever. So don't walk away from him. He offers you life for nothing. He offers his body and blood by faith. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn it. He gives himself freely to all who call upon his name. And it will be worth it. So trust him. And finally, this passage has something to say to what I will call the young folks. And I don't, I don't mean the teenagers, although I hope that they are listening. I'm talking about people in their 20s and 30s, not married or married without kids, who are so much more flexible and able to just pick up and go than the rest of us. This passage sets you free to make great sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Jesus said that this gospel of the kingdom, this good news about Jesus, will go throughout the whole world. It will be preached as a testimony to all nations. The good news about Jesus needs to go everywhere. And though God may call families to go, he may call people in their 80s to go. In history, the, some of the greatest advances of the gospel have been made by people who have their whole lives ahead of them and decide, I'm not going to take the career route. I'm not going to go for money. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to pour it out for Jesus' sake and for the gospel among the nations. And so as you're making your plans about what your life is going to look like, don't forget this passage. Don't forget that whatever you give up, God will give a hundredfold and in the age to come, eternal life. Whatever it costs you will be worth it. And so think about the nations as you plan out your life. There is joy for you from God in great sacrifices for the gospel. Jesus gives us eternal life freely as a gift, not a purchase. With the gift comes a cost, but Jesus knows the cost and he assures us that it will be abundantly worthwhile, that God's provision will vastly outweigh the cost. So sunrise, by God's grace, let's follow Jesus despite the cost, trusting in the greatness of the joy that awaits us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this assurance. We thank you, above all, for eternal life in Jesus, which you give to us freely, not by works, so that no one may boast, but by faith, by your grace. And we thank you that you know that it costs us to follow you, that you don't forget what it costs us, but you promise to abundantly, over the top, bless us in this life and in the age to come. And the greatest blessing is knowing you, is walking with you, is belonging to you. And so please, God, help us to make the costly choices in obedience to you that advance the gospel and bring you glory and that are, in the end, most for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.